live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back to part two of the series of the French Revolution. Before we start, Rabbi Hirsch, I just want to give a quick apology to the listeners who all wrote in. We bought the Ami magazine and we didn't see the right. article of the Geniza. So <laughs> yes. we it was actually a misunderstanding and it's going to be in the Sukhs edition. It's going to be a mini series. So taking up one, two, possibly three weeks of the Sukhs edition and going forward. To all those who bought the ME magazine, especially for the article, then um, we can email us for a refund. Right. <laughs> I'm sure they enjoyed it. So. But I mean, yeah, it was a good magazine anyway. So last week, we covered the introduction of the revolution in terms of history. We end up in 1789 with 40,000 Jews in France, mostly in the Northeast. But we now, in this episode, we have to understand the revolution itself and more importantly, how it affected the Jews. Okay. So we will start with two assumptions. Both are false. It is assumed that the French Revolution gave Jews freedom. It didn't. It is assumed the revolution went sort of something like this. On day one, hungry peasants stormed the Bastille and released the innocent prisoners. On day two, a people's tribunal votes to cut off the heads of the evil king and his wife and introduce a glorious era of liberty, equality and fraternity. And then on day three, Napoleon, who heads the army, leads the revolution into Europe by declaring war on Europe. Except that none of this is true, not even remotely true. And the revolution was not over in 1789. It lasted 10 full years. In fact, the chorus of the French national anthem, La Marseillaise, which was made during that period, helps promote the myth. Marchand, marchand, let's march and may our fields be irrigated with impure blood, which is obviously a shade more violent than God Save the Queen. <laughs> uh, but it's also pretty inaccurate because most of the tens of thousands of victims of the French Revolution were French. They were not foreign. And in fact, the composer was eventually arrested for being too royalist. The Marseillaise didn't fare much better. It was banned by Napoleon and only restored as the national anthem in 1879. OK, a little French history lesson. Let's start with that symbol that marks the revolution and gives the date to French Independence Day, 14 juillet, the 14th of July, La Prise de la Bastille, the overthrow of the hated prison by the working class. Yeah. So the Bastille was an old fortified prison in the east of Paris that was due for closure. And it only had seven prisoners, none of whom were revolutionaries. Four of them were forgers who'd been jailed for a banking scam. There were two lunatics and all these six would actually be rearrested and jailed. And there was a member of nobility. There had been another one. The Marquis de Sade had been moved out of this jail a few days earlier. 
what did actually happen was that France in the 1700s was the largest empire and the wealthiest. But then, well, they decided to back the Americans during independence, and there's a price to pay for kicking out the British, besides for the tea that they owe us. In their case, it was financial. France became almost bankrupt helping the Americans, but hey, they got a nice couple of statues in return. And then there were a couple of bad harvests, there were setbacks in war, and France was way into debt. And the majority of the inhabitants of France were at that stage not represented by parliament or by the government because the way it worked was that the clergy and nobility had basically all the say although they only made up uh, 10% of the country and they paid no taxes so the the middle class and the lower class came to the king in in Versailles in the palace and they want rights but no one else is interested so this group declares itself the national assembly I am obviously being brief, um, going through months of history, but you get the general idea. Um, And this 90%, basically, they are France. They represent most of the population. So the royal officials lock this new national assembly out of their meeting hall. So the members of the assembly occupy the king's indoor tennis court and take what becomes known as the tennis court oath. They are not going to leave the room before France has a new constitution. And eventually, in fact, King Louis XVI has to give in. And he was imprisoned as a result? Oh, no, no, no. Perish the thought. At this stage of the revolution, no one is talking about killing the king or even deposing him. What most politicians wanted was a constitution. Uh, which could be headed by a king, a constitutional monarchy, in other words, like the one across the Channel in England. They had just chosen a brilliant prime minister in William Pitt. Uh, What they did insist on in France was to remove the power of the church, of religion, and of the nobility. And these people make a declaration of the rights of man and of the citizen. The king refuses to sanction it, So the Parisians start marching on Versailles and they force the royal family back to Paris. And the revolution, uh, it it, it proceeds in in fits and starts. It's not an organised uprising with a, a single goal. It's not the Russian Revolution of 1917. And in fact, you could say it's a mixture of idealistic political debate and violent destruction. So, you know, while the Assemblée is hammering out the details of France's declarations of human rights, of which Article 2 is the inalienable right to property, you have peasants all over the country burning down castles and landowners' houses. So it doesn't quite work, you know, in one direction. And then, to add to the mess, the king gets spectacularly bad advice, mostly from his wife, Marie Antoinette, and anybody else. Um, And he, in fact, he starts gathering the troops in order to try and disperse the National Assembly, which was a, a bad idea. And then in 1791, Louis XVI and his family uh, attempt to flee France and they are captured, which is an even worse idea. Uh, So finally, in 1792, the king is arrested. 
this is three years down the line, we get the abolition of the monarchy and the French Republic is now established. But the revolution hasn't been settled. There are uprisings, rebellions, massacres in the thousands. And there is tremendous poverty, there's shortage of basic food. But all that is, of course, too boring. So in the middle of all of this, the French come up with the idea of introducing a new calendar. And I don't mean one that had more French words in it. It was as revolutionary as the revolution. They decided to go metric. They created a 10-day week. And it had 36 weeks in the year and, you know, and added five days at the end. And the 10th day, Décadé, replaced Sunday as the day of rest. And because it was, you know, designed to remove all religious and royalist influence from the calendar, they changed the name of every month, unrecognizably. So, you know, the year now starts at around 22nd September. The first month is Vendémiaire. Then you have Brumaire, Frimaire, Nivos, Thermidor, Fructidor. In fact, Britain mocked the Republican calendar by calling the months wheezy, sneezy, freezy, slippy, drippy, nippy, showery, flowery, bowery, hoppy, croppy, poppy. You've got to make a song right. out of that. Nice. <laughs> they probably did. How long did this madness last for? 12 years. Right. This is not. Uh, they functioned as a country for twelve years with that. With this calendar, yep. It was wow. using official documents in in France and then all the areas <laughs> under French rule, which is part of the Netherlands, part of Germany, Italy, and 1792 is now called Year One. And then they decide that each day, each one of the 365 has to have its own name. So the first one on the 22nd of September is grape, and the 26th of September is horse, and the 30th of September is parsnip. And I hope you know the difference between a parsnip and a turnip, because turnip is in October, and you have aubergine. I mean, the thing is nuts. Nuts is probably also one of the names. And besides for all this, they now have their hands full with the trial of citoyen, citizen Louis Capet, who was formerly King Louis XVI. And on the 17th of January, 1793, he is sentenced to death. 360 deputies vote in favour and 288 vote against. So those numbers seem to show that the country itself didn't know what it wanted. Yeah, I mean, they didn't know what it wanted basically for a whole decade. And now, now that they've killed the king, you know, you've got empires and kings across Europe calling for the overthrow of revolutionary France. So now in France, in addition to the revolution and the calendar, France decides to declare war on Britain, the Dutch, Austria, Prussia, Spain and Portugal. And Napoleon's leading the army at that time? Napoleon is neither the head of the army nor any part of the army. We'll get to him soon. And then in 1793, when things couldn't get any worse, they do. Spectacularly so. A bloke called Robespierre decides to get rid of his colleagues in power in Paris. So he has them arrested and uh, killed, as one does, you know, guillotined. And he gets into power. And starts what will be known as the Reign of Terror. Over the next year, France will kill 30 to 40,000 of their own and arrest 300,000. This is not nobility. These are sort of, you know, newly created citizens. Were the Jews targeted? Okay, so with all that we've said till now, the question is, how does all of this affect the Jews? It would have been impossible for it to pass them by. 
And actually, the changes that happened were permanent, not so much to the Jews, but to Judaism and negative. Now, it all starts positively. Imagine you're a Jew in 1789 with discrimination. You're, you're unable to live in most of the country. You obviously have no right to, to vote. You are taxed unfairly, all the things we discussed last week. And suddenly, those power bases disappear. You know, wow. In fact, to this day, for many Jews, the French Revolution came to constitute the birth date of a new existence. You know, later generations would credit this momentous event as a uh, turning point of uh, extraordinary magnitude, referring to it in, in, you know, almost in messianic terms. And therefore, not surprisingly, the many setbacks suffered by the generation of 1789 are largely absent from these rose-tinted recollections. But there was a strong belief that the revolution ended centuries of, of degradation, of legal discrimination, of exclusion from the mainstream of society. And therefore, from 1789, the destinies of France and the Jews become one. Jews are not only free, they are equal. They're citizens. And in fact, in January 1790, all Jews known in France under the names Portuguese, Spanish or Avignonese shall enjoy the rights of active citizens. And a full 18 months later, in September 1791, the Ashkenazim joined the list of citizenship. In fact, all people in France now become free, which is all fantastic. Except that history paints a more nuanced, a more complex picture. And these 10 years are possibly the least known decade in modern Western history. It's impossible to date with their calendars being so skewed. <laughs> right. Well, the rest of the world is keeping a different <laughs> calculation. The problem is as follows. The Jews are free. But what does that mean? What do the Jews need to become to be accepted? And actually, civic equality came at a heavy price. First, we have to understand that question has not been asked about the Jews in 1,500 years. No non-Jewish country or government ever cared. And now the Jews are in the headlights. It's genuinely revolutionary times. The debates initially between 1789 and 1792 would exist. There would be two sides. It would exist in Parliament. Is it possible for a Jew to be repatriated or patriated, I guess? Can Jews become citizens? It's debated in leaflets, in newspapers. In 1790, there's an anti-Jewish pamphleteer who wrote that because of their religion, the Jews would be able to work no more than six months of the year, and because of Shabbos, they wouldn't be able to serve in the army. But then you've got assimilated Jews who are part of this discussion, and they're saying, no, 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 you know, all Judaism is negotiable, Shabbos, Kashras, whatever you want. And obviously, you have to realize what's at stake. For one and a half thousand years, they have been second-class outcasts, refugees, immigrants in a society which never looked at them, except when the money was right. But they never wanted them. At best, there'd been periods of toleration for one and a half thousand years, and suddenly that's all set to possibly change. But no one's thought this through. Not the Jews, not the non-Jews. It's happened so unexpectedly. You know, what did the non-Jews want? What do the Jews want? Which Jews? The assimilated Svaradim in the south, the Yiddish-speaking Ashkenazim in the north? Obviously, there would have to be a reprioritization of Jewish commitments 
But who would be in charge of the Druze, the state or the Kehillah? So difficult for us to even appreciate the question, to fathom the concept that these things were being asked. Yeah, because we've all got, you know, United States or UK passports. We vote, we live wherever, we buy property, we we get any job. And in fact, you know, nowadays, 150 years later, we've created a halfway house. So we can be openly religious. We can even get government or state funding for institutions or whatever. We can work in any profession. We can live anywhere. And when I go for a job, you can't ask if I'm Jewish, never mind sort of actually discriminate against against me on the basis that I'm a Drew. But there's a but. You know, but our Besdin is nowadays only a moral force. I can't force you to attend Besdin. I definitely can't force you to accept its decisions. Torah rulings have been emasculated and they are now followed voluntarily. And we've got to be constantly vigilant in, in especially here in Europe, you know, Shechita, Brismila. In England, non-Jews can send their children to Orthodox Jewish state schools and no one could do anything about it. But in all Western democracies, the law of the land intrude on your religious choices. You know, try get married at 16 or under 16. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You want acceptance, it costs. Now, of course, we've gained a tremendous amount as a result, but, you know. So all of this starts in France in 1789. Yep. Wow. Yes. And it concerns a variety of areas, professions. Even supporters of the Jews said that the Jewish businesses of money lending needed to end. They agree that the Jews are scarcely to blame for this uh, regrettable state of affairs, but there's no denying the reality that it gives them a bad rep, whatever its cause. So they need to break with the past. Problem was that half of the Jews of Alsace-Lorraine are earning their keep through money lending. And so you can't make any sudden moves. And anyway, into which new profession? They're all going to become doctors? You know, be reasonable. It wasn't going to happen. And if they moved moved into the trade areas, then the locals won't be happy. So in theory, great idea, possibly. But in practice, it, it couldn't work in the 10, 20 years that followed. So who wanted the money lending to end? The non-Jews, even the friends of the non-Jews, they said, we don't want you to be doing this. And the friend said, and it's not good for you anyway. Mm -hmm. Then you have the issues of language. They saw the use of Yiddish as an obstacle to social integration, and it creates mistrust that the Jews need their own language. And there's all these questions of loyalty to state, loyalty to other citizens. Uh, you know, it, it, during the revolution, civic obligations are endowed with an, an importance that's almost akin to a, a sacred duty. And basically what they wanted was that communities should continue to maintain their rabbis, but rabbinical authority would be limited to areas of, of uh, religious custom ceremony. It would be a de-ritualized Judaism. And citizenship would supplant religion as the basis of equality. And then they said all anti-Jewish prejudices would disappear and the Jews will be accepted and they'll be safe in Europe. And logically, of course, it makes sense. Become a citizen. You'll be treated like anybody else. No one's heard of Hitler in 1789. And we know that a Jew is never like anyone else. But when the rabbis tried to point out the problems internally in France, and they use uh, the examples which are most obvious, ancient Greece, Hanukkah, Yovon, they're ridiculed because this is the glorious future. 
I've know I've asked this before on different podcasts, but if this was indeed the catalyst, as you're describing, to the Judaism that we know today, mm. why is this such an unknown part of our <laughs> education, and why why do we have no idea about it? Um, I say we. I'm talking about myself. So the truth is, there are very few books on it, even though it had a major effect on Europe's view of the Jews and on the Jews of Europe themselves. It then got subsumed in what Napoleon would do, which we will come to possibly this week, possibly next week. The way you're describing it, then France became assimilated to some extent. What was the... The Druze, you mean? Yeah. Well, I guess we could perhaps use the word luckily. Luckily, so to speak, there were lots of riots going on and murder and uh, changing politics. Uh, remember, in 1792, they still have a king and he isn't even under arrest, although they'd created this declaration of rights and he's opposed to it. So it's a mess. And therefore, the only reason that the Jewish problem isn't addressed head on and fully is because the non-Jews have enough problems of their own, as I've mentioned this evening, the non-Jews are trying to figure out their own independence and rights. What there is, is a religious backlash in general across the country. Religion is the devil because part of the revolution was a destruction of the power base of the clergy who had been squeezing money out of the country and out of the peasants. And the clergy openly, the Catholics, sided with the counter-revolutionary elements. And then once the state had created a secular power base to replace the church and nobility, and they sort of removed Catholicism, now it does that for other religions as well. So didn't the religions sort of get together to fight all this? I mean, the Jews weren't alone. No, because the entire country is now firstly fed up of the privileged position of the church. They might be believing Christians. I'm sure they were. But the country needed the church to be a moral voice. Right. Not well, lawful. Yeah. You, you know, you can be on the radio, but <laughs> you're, you're not going to be the people who control my life. And bearing in mind that until then, they had been the power of the parliament, not just that in religious affairs they had had a say. And the people of the country said, you know, enough. That's it. So France was the first country in Europe to emancipate the Jews? Okay. So technically in... 1781, 1782, the Habsburgs had officially done so in the Austrian Empire. 18th century Prague podcast part three and four, part four more, except that really most of the restrictions against the Jews in the Habsburg Empire were maintained. They still couldn't get married in Bohemia, Moravia. Jews couldn't buy any land or buildings in, in Vienna for another 50 years afterwards. So it wasn't real citizenship. And the reason is because there the king decided these things. There's no revolution. So the outcome isn't revolutionary. It's a step towards. So what actually did happen to the Jewish citizenship in France? Okay, so initially Ashkenazi leaders could not conceive of a Judaism that's independent of communal control. There's never been such a thing ever since Yitzhak Mitzrayim, you know, for 3,000 years. And therefore, they tried to hold on to the judicial and religious internal status quo. And even following the Declaration of the Rights of Man, Jewish delegates from Eastern France petitioned to become full citizens while keeping their rights to religious autonomy. But 
shortly afterwards, the Ashkenazim dropped this insistence and the Jews caved in. They didn't really have a lot of choice. And citizenship is granted on the condition that Jewish communities no longer have the privileges of only rabbinic jurisdiction in civil affairs, in financial matters, etc. The Bezdin, the Rabbinate, the Kehillah, ceased to be the only legislative force. And now you have the government, the country who are calling the shots, not Torah. And the eventual idea was to shut down all rabbinic authority completely. But that sounds like it's almost aimed at Judaism. It is, but not out of anti-Semitism. It's aimed at religion. And in the Jewish case, it's much more intrusive than Catholicism. There was much more that religion did and We had more to lose. Right. So there's a very famous quote of de Clermont-Tonnerre in Parliament in late 1789. And he says as follows, We must refuse everything to the Jews as a nation and give everything to them as individuals. We must withdraw recognition from their judges. They should only have our judges. We must refuse legal protection to the so-called laws of their Judaic organization. They must be citizens individually. But some will say to me, they don't want to be citizens. If they don't want to be citizens, they should say so. And then we should banish them. And by the way, this guy is more or less a friend of the Jews. He's definitely a liberal. So basically, the idea is you can vote, you can now live anywhere in France, but as Frenchmen, not as Jews. However, think of how scary the alternative is. You're going to tell me you want to give up your citizenship two years after you got it and plunge Jews back into the persecution of the Middle Ages? I mean, we will come back to this because in Napoleon's time, it gets sharpened. And Napoleon, despite his write-up as a liberator of the Jews, was an anti-Semite. I'm looking forward to hear about that. How did all of this affect Jews on a day-to-day? Could they practice religion openly? Was it just the basin that you were describing? We are still, at the moment, talking about 1789 to 1792, the first three years. In Alsace-Lorraine, the main change is economic. There is economic devastation. It's the almost immediate consequence of the revolution. There's this poverty, which is rampant. Many are without food. And Torah scholars, who had been maintained by the community couldn't be supported anymore. And relatively few Jewish families venture outside of the safety of their community. In in Metz, there are only 29 families who leave the ghetto. And therefore, there, religiously, on a day-to-day basis, they still maintain most of their communal infrastructure. But, but, all that I've said till now about the Jews, all of this breakdown is just a prelude to the real disruption during the reign of terror in 1793, because now the situation deteriorated dramatically. The Jewish religion is persecuted. It's under attack. Shechita, Brismila, Shabbos, Torah, Shuls, especially in Alsace-Lorraine, but all over. In the south, there's a suburb of Bayonne where the majority of the inhabitants were Jewish. And therefore, they also constitute the majority of the radical municipal council during this reign of terror. And therefore, the struggles there against Shabbos observance are conducted with no less vehemence than in cities where the local authorities are non-Jewish. And when the Jews of this area in Saint-Esprit-les-Bayonne continue to wear 
Shabbos garments, Shabbos clothing. The Jacobin Club, on June 14, 1794, ordered the police to arrest every Jew who flaunts his idleness, who doesn't work on Shabbos, right? The Hebrew teacher, Jessel Lehman, recorded in his diary, which he kept in a Yiddish cipher just in case, that in Alsace, the Jews were forbidden to keep Shabbos and had been compelled to assist the farmers in their chores on that day, and lighting Shabbos candles was forbidden. The Jews were made to keep their shops open. In Hagenau, Jews conducted religious services secretly in an oil factory. They entered through a, a side door which led to the house of a Jewish neighbor. And to divert the possible attention of the authorities, they had a few Jews in working clothes walking up and down the street singing revolutionary songs. And the Shabbos candles were lit inside clandestinely in the, in the ovens there. In Paris... The Jews davened on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in a cellar converted into a shul, secretly. How did this deteriorate so rapidly? Because in the period of terror, there are people are being arrested for nothing. 300,000 French citizens are arrested by the French. It is a period of... I mean, chaos is such a mild way of describing it, and therefore it spills over. This is a time where we are going to not legislate a revolution, but force a revolution. It's like Animal Farm when, you know, Napoleon becomes in charge. Now, the important thing to bear in mind is that no Jews are being killed. They're not being guillotined for keeping Shabbos. Uh, but there's a pressure and an expectation and things don't you, you don't know how things are going to work out yet. And legislation is being written and things could become very nasty very quickly. Take another example, wearing beards. In the Lower Rhine, a prohibition went into effect on November 23rd, 1793. And Jessel Naaman writes in his diary that there are cases where Jews had their beards and payers publicly cut off. I mean, the interesting thing about it is that nobody knows about this period of history. It's insane, right? Well, it's crazy how much the Nazis copied things in history, just like most people don't know that the Yellow Star wasn't right, invented. Right, was far earlier, right. Now, as I say, it wasn't that people were being put to death, but there was persecution. Lehman writes they even had to pay the barber's fees if they had their beards cut off. And amongst the victims was Lehman's father-in-law, who was aroused from his sleep in the middle of the night and publicly subjected to having his, his beard cut off. Schrita is the subject of attack. December 2nd, 1793, the municipal council in Strasbourg bans Schrita. Brismila, in many cases, it had to be postponed till the year of terror was over. But the greatest victim was terror learning. In most communities, the Chadorim and Yeshivas close. The Yeshiva Metz is closed, and Rubdovid Zintzheim, he, he is famous, he will become famous, so to speak, for the role he plays in the Napoleonic Sanhedrin. So he has settled in Strasbourg. He moved his Yeshiva from Bishheim to Strasbourg. This is before 1793. He is the brother-in-law of the very wealthy serf bear that we mentioned last week, who petitioned Strasbourg with the king's approval to purchase a house in the city. 
But during the reign of terror, Rabbi Zintzheim is compelled to leave Strasbourg. He lost the use of all his svarim, and he has a vivid account describing the burning of Sifrei Terah, the closing of his yeshiva and his own wanderings in the introduction to his writings to Yad David. He says, in the year 1794, when the days of anger arrived, our numerous faults caused Sifrei Terah and precious books to be burnt, and precious treasures were then pilfered. In this period of trouble and anger, those who knew, knew the way of the Talmud stopped traveling, and the ways of Tzion were desolate. The doors of the temple were closed. I was in exile and moved from city to city, from border to border. Wow. In Paris, there were two Chadorim which had functioned. During the reign of terror, the teachers took their pupils instead to the revolutionary Temple de la Raison, the Temple of Reason, which was housed where? In the Notre Dame Cathedral. Wow, that was allowed? <laughs> allowed? It was the way forward. These temples of reason were part of the new belief system created to replace Christianity based on, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité. They took over churches all over the country. They covered up the, the symbols of Christianity and they replaced them with symbols of the cult of reason. And, you know, in the Notre Dame in Paris, on the 10th of November, 1793, there was a special uh, ritual held for the Feast of Reason in front of all the crowds. And this is where those children in Cheda were brought instead of studying Judaism. Oh, see, I misunderstood. Right? I, thought the, I thought that was almost a hideout. No, no. And printing, Jewish printing, stops abruptly. Both the printing presses in northeast France were closed down. And one rabbi, in fact, burnt his own unpublished manuscript. He was scared they would fall into the wrong hands. Rav Yaakov Meyer of Niedernai was imprisoned. Rav Shimon Horchheim of Mutzig was arrested. And he was nearly executed for almost publicly violating the order prohibiting Shabbos observance, not only of himself, but almost encouraging it. And Rav Yaakov Guggenheim of Hagenau was ordered to turn over the keys of the shul to the authorities of the city and prohibited from having the title rabbi being used. Couldn't the Jews leave? And go where? Why would it be better elsewhere? I mean, this was happening in France, right? I understand. But in Germany at the time, let's say in Bavaria, there are basically no Jews. In Prussia, uh, there are very few Jews and only if they're very wealthy, you know, etc. Now, as a result of the deterioration of conditions in Alsace-Lorraine, an entire generation of yeshiva students and rabbis did leave the region and they immigrate to Germany, but they are few in number. Also, we have to be aware that this happens suddenly in a very, very short period of time. And no one's quite sure where it's going to go, because it's not as if now the country opposed the Russian Revolution. A year later, everything's settled. They're in power. This is going to be the way forward. Here, no one knows what's going to happen. And then you've got the shuls. In 1784... There are over 8,000 Jews living in the upper Alsace, and they have 53 shuls. During the terror, many of them are closed or nationalized. Strasbourg orders all its shuls closed. The Jews of Avignon in the south had to give up all their religious articles, all the silver, and the shul was soon closed. In Carpentras, it was confiscated and given to the revolution as a meeting place. And in fact, in several places, the rabbinate remains vacant for a number of years afterwards because no one wants to come back yet. So as I mentioned, no one is killed. 
And if religion is officially forbidden, it's being done not as anti-Semitism, but for the glorious revolution, which is perhaps also a reason that people aren't leaving. It's not Jews alone that are being persecuted. But by the end of the century, the institutional and cultural foundations of Jewish life were in shambles. What happened to the mikvahs? They were destroyed with the shuls? So Interestingly, almost obviously every community had a mikvah, but in Metz, for instance, the mikvah was open even during the reign of terror. I presume because it's physically underground, it's attended at night by individuals, so it's, you know, it's under the radar. Now, some people used the upheaval, some Jews, as an opportunity to escape religion. Until this point, Jewish marriage was recognised by the French courts. No Jew needed to get civilly married, nor, for instance, did the application of French civil law apply to Jewish marriages. So in theory, you could marry more than one wife. So you have a guy called Avram Pixoto of Bordeaux. And during the revolution, he wanted to divorce his wife because he argued that when he got married, he was a minor. And therefore, he's not married according to French law. But the Bezdin in Bordeaux said, no, this is a legal marriage and your child is a legal child, etc. So he goes to the non-Jewish court. And on May the 14th, 1792, the non-Jewish court of justice in Bordeaux delivers a judgment in favour of his wife and their child, who is declared legitimate, because the marriage of the couple was subject only to Jewish law. If he'd have waited till 1793, he'd have got his way. Because by then, halacha marriage had to be subject to civil approval. So you're saying before that, the only way for a Jew to marry a non-Jew was actually by converting to Christianity? Yes. Yeah, no, here he'd married somebody Jewish, but yes. That, In general. That is actually true. And now, you know, you want to marry a shiksa, so go ahead. In fact, for some people in revolutionary France, mixed marriages became a symbol of the new era, both for Jews and for non-Jews. It right. now becomes a two-way street. That's always the case with intermarriage. Both sides have to be acquiescent in order for it to take place, but it's seen as being fashionable. Wow. Unbelievably. So you've mentioned Napoleon, and I think we have to bring him in at some point. Almost not mentioned him, yes. <laughs> yeah, where, where was he in all of this? Well, his story really starts in 1795, after the year of terror is over, and Robespierre has now been killed. In 1795, the Directory takes power. They are five ministers or officials. Now, it's true, by now, the privileged aristocrats that layer has been stripped away and the church power. But it's been replaced by bureaucrats who have got just as much power and just as violent. And six years into the revolution, the economy is in a state of collapse and the poor were dying in droves. And the army is now led by this young general called Napoleon Bonaparte. But this isn't a positive time. In 1797, free speech is ended and press censorship is introduced. On the 9th of November, 1799, Napoleon stages a coup d'etat. What he does is using uh, basically trickery, he gets these five ministers to walk away from power and he takes over. This now becomes the end of the French Revolution and the start of the Napoleonic era. Napoleon is post 
revolution, not during. Once again, a fact that very few people appreciate because he was a general during the revolutionary period. But he really starts his reign in 1799. And under him in 1802, first of all, slavery is legalised again. And an amnesty is granted to all the aristocrats who had run away to, to Britain and other countries. And France now gets a military dictator. And he marries a great niece of Marie Antoinette, whose head they chopped off in 1793. And then after Napoleon in 1814, King Louis XVIII who is the brother of King Louis XVI, comes back to Paris. So 25 years after the storming of the Bastille, France is back to square one. (laughs) Okay, but let's deal with Napoleon for a moment. So initially, the aggressive efforts of Napoleon to shape domestic policy were seen positively, even by the Jews. There is enthusiastic support for the emperor, for instance, on the occasion of you know military victories. Uh, Jews come to the Paris uh, synagogue to hear specially composed prayers. And the Tefillah HaNesim Trulam in which Jews ask God to grant the head of the state uh, victory and dominion over his enemies, it's replaced by a composition authored by Rabavram Kolonia in 1808. And this new prayer called Elohim Chaim is a poetic hymn in verse, which is more appropriate for choral accompaniment. And this new prayer omits the section asking Hashem to incline the heart of the king to have mercy on the unhappy fate of the Jews and to hasten their deliverance to Zion, because it sounded unpatriotic and ungrateful. But Napoleon wanted domestic conformity at all costs, so he turned his attention to the Jews, especially the Jews of Alsace-Lorraine and by now the Jews of Paris. And he convenes a grand Sanhedrin in April 1806 to consider a set of 12 questions. Basically, this assembly was there to endorse and legitimize his goal of assimilating the Jews into French society. And this 70-member Sanhedrin is made up of uh, rabbis and lay people. It's, in fact, led by David Zinsheim, who we mentioned, of Strasbourg. But the questions are very revealing, and they expose all the fault lines between Jews and non-Jews. So I'll mention a few of the questions. Is secular divorce, state divorce, recognized by Jewish law? Can Jews intermarry with Christians? Are they bound to obey the laws and customs of the land? What are the legal powers of the rabbis? Is it permitted to lend money at interest to non-Jews? Right, these are difficult questions to answer. And typical of his ego, he called it himself the Sanhedrin. (laughs) And, you know, there's a medallion struck in the Paris Mint in commemoration of it. And he gives them garments with silk capes and three-cornered hats. But despite the honour given to them, the goal was that Judaism would end up having no hold over the Jew. People could elect voluntarily to keep Shabbos or Kashrus, but no one would be able to engineer a responsibility on others. That would be the price of emancipation. And you can imagine that the rabbis who make up this Sanhedrin don't want to answer these questions. What are they going to say? So what was going on there? 
So next week we will deal with what the answers were and with Rubdovid's in time himself. Well, thank you very much, Robbie. It was a riveting episode. I'm just realising it was uh, longer than usual, but you you had me there. <laughs> we'll be back for part three yes. next week. Please send all questions or feedback to podcast at jd.org.uk and make sure you subscribe to whatever platform you're listening to this on and you give it a five-star rating in order that more people can listen and learn too. Thank you, Robbie. Hirsch. <laughs>